Let's turn to God's Word at this stage. Uh, we're going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 20 to 26, and then verses 45 uh, to 49. Uh, and this is Paul in that very famous uh, passage on the resurrection, and yet he brings up something uh, about the last Adam. So let's uh, hear God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since uh, death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then we uh, turn to verses 45 and 49 of the same chapter. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so were those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds and bring the fire of your Holy Spirit into this place that as your word is thought about and shared and that we listen, would you fill our hearts with your spirit and with a desire not only to hear and understand but to respond to your word this day. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. In the morning services, we're looking at the glory of Christ and of the cross. And in the past weeks, we've looked at Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Lord, and Jesus the Son of God. And this morning, we come to the term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 and 45, that Jesus, he says, is the last Adam. An interesting phrase. I I cannot believe this, but I have never preached on this uh, subject of the last Adam before, so I'm delighted to put that right this morning. We should note that the biblical description of Jesus is not as a second Adam, but the last Adam. One of the reasons that some people talk about the second Adam is to do with Cardinal Newman, a Roman Catholic man who wrote the hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height, and it contained these words, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. Now, I don't think it's being pedantic this morning to say there's an important distinction to be made here. To believe in Jesus as the second Adam could imply that there are more to come in a series of Adams. But to say Jesus is the last Adam indicates that he is the only alternative to the first Adam. 
Paul put it this way in the words we just read. The first Adam, he said, became a living being. But the contrast is quite stark because Jesus, says Paul, became a life-giving spirit. Such a difference. The first Adam became a, a, a person made and created in the image of God, a living human being, that the last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit, can impart spiritual life and eternal life onto those who trust in him. So what does all this mean? It means simply that the connection we have with the first Adam, our human ancestor, our ancestors, is by nature. Our connection with Jesus as the last Adam is won by grace through the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me clarify the distinction in other terms, if I may. Look again at 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Let's take the two parts in that uh, sentence, if we may. And the first part is, as in Adam all die. We live in a super-individualistic world. The my way generation like to be self-contained people. And indeed, most Westerners see it as a necessity that part of our freedom is to live self-directing, self-determining lives. We love our autonomy. We love to be islands on our own, answerable to no one, and not being affected by anyone, just being ourselves. But Scripture is different. Scripture tells us that God deals with us both as individuals, but also by the race of which we're part, the human race. And he says that the two are inextricably linked, or Scripture tells us that. Scripture tells us that it is our humanity by which our lives are conditioned and in which each of us bears a responsibility for the state of the whole. You see, it's not the case that you and I can say that we are so righteous and everybody else is so full of sin that I am absolved from the sins of mankind or that you are absolved from the sins of mankind. We cannot say that. And in one of the uh, very famous verses uh, that Paul wrote in Romans 3 uh, and verse 23, we have this uh, image you know only too well from the many times that we've read this verse that the uh, picture is of a target, an archer shooting at a target. And the idea here is that the target is so far away that uh, even the best archer cannot get his arrow anywhere near the target. And in Romans 3 and 23, Paul wrote this, there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when you think that someone out there in society who doesn't come to church, who's no Christian faith, whose lifestyle is totally divergent from yours or mine, if you think that they are such a a big sinner that they have no hope of reaching the target, but you have a hope, you get it wrong because Paul says all have sinned, even the great big sinners out there and people in the church, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God because it's so far away from any of us that even the best of people cannot reach it. 
But sometimes people feel the doctrine of original sin is unfair. How can the sin of our first human ancestors mean that we're born into a state where our natural bias is towards sin and away from God? Well, imagine, if you would, a glass of pure, sparkling, clear water. Schoolboy experiment. You inject a a little drop of black ink into the water, and before you know it, all the water in the glass becomes discolored. Now imagine that you keep on injecting more and more of the black ink into the water. What happens is the water becomes blacker and blacker, but it's all affected. And the Bible tells us that because of the first Adam, our first human ancestors, sinning and falling from God, we're all affected by sin, just like the ink injected into the pure water. And therefore, we're all born into the environment and the reality of the darkness and spoiling nature of sin. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Uh, He said, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. I think what the Bible is teaching us is that the first Adam was this seminal head of the human race from which every human being has flowed like streams from the one fountain. And therefore, what Adam was, the whole human race was. What Adam did, the whole human race did. And that's why Paul can write that all human beings have sinned and fall short of the holiness of the glory of God. And I think I've spent a little bit of time in this because in our culture, we need to take responsibility for our sinfulness and recognize that all of us who have been born into that state of spiritual death And from that spiritual death, we need to be delivered and resurrected. That's the bad news. Spiritual death comes through Adam. But the good news, the really, really good news, and news that indeed we celebrate by gathering around this table, is that secondly, in Christ all will be made alive. If it's by virtue of our union with Adam that we all die spiritually and ultimately also physically, Then by union with Christ, we're all made alive spiritually and forevermore, even physically in our promised resurrection bodies. I don't know if any of you uh, subscribe to uh, the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity's Word for the Week, uh, but I I find it fascinating when you plan preaching uh, several months in advance that things happen that are just uh, appropriate to time. And this... uh, Week, the 23rd of January, Anthony Billington uh, wrote this in his word for the week. And he says this, if I quote, What's the central thought of Paul's letters? Is it justification, reconciliation, adoption? These are certainly important to Paul. But what's most central is Jesus. The prior, primary, central, fundamental reality for Paul is our union with Christ being in Christ. And all the benefits of salvation flow from that union. Our justification, adoption, redemption, sanctification, preservation, and glorification and our being joined to each other in the church, the body of Christ. Well, I want to very quickly and briefly, if I may, pick up on those amazing words that uh, Anthony Billington has used. Uh, And some of the words are not necessarily part of our everyday vocabulary, but the little word in 
that Billington says is important is almost an understatement. Commentators say that no phrase was more important to Paul than in Christ. And for those who have the time and energy to do this, commentators have gone through Paul's writings and they have said that he uses the phrase in Christ apparently some 240 times. So it's obviously a very important phrase for the Apostle Paul. So I make no apology this morning that I want to just pick up that collection of great words that Anthony Billington uses here. I wish he had explained them. But I, I want to, in my own words, and very briefly, I realize there's lots of words here. So we're going to scoot through scriptures. Maybe if you have a pen, you might want to take down some of these uh, scriptures and, and notes for this is all we have in Christ. For just as in Adam all died in Christ, all have been made alive. But what does that mean? It means, firstly, that in Christ we have justification. Uh, look, uh, if you would, at Romans 3. And verse 24, uh, and this is Paul's uh, words after saying all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, he says, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Justified freely by his grace. That God's favor is now towards us because Jesus has declared us not guilty of sin. That's how God regards us, just as if I'd never sinned. In Christ, we have justification. In Christ, we have adoption. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, these uh, lovely words. Now, there are many passages we could have taken to uh, use to describe this, but I wanted to pick up this uh, passage because it actually quotes something right from the Old Testament. Uh, and this is a quotation from the Old Testament where God says to his people, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Right from Old Testament times, all the way through the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus and the salvation that Jesus brings, God's heart has been that you and I might be adopted into his family as sons and daughters of God. In Christ we have that adoption. And in Christ, as Paul wrote, the Roman adoption laws were very liberal in many ways because the adopted child had all the full rights of natural-born children. Uh, and there was no distinction in law between an adopted child and a child born naturally to parents. Paul says the great thing about Jesus is that in him we have adoption into God's family as his sons and daughters together. And here's another thing. These great words just keep on coming. In Christ we have redemption. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In him we have redemption. Of course, the, the, the concept behind Paul speaking in Ephesians 1, 7 is being set free from slavery, buying back something that was lost or sold. And our redemption, says Paul, has been paid for by Christ's blood or death. Only in him, therefore, have we got redemption from captivity to sin. And there's more. In Christ we have sanctification. 
Uh, and again, there are so many quotations we could use, and I've picked out Hebrews 10 and verse 14. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I, I love that verse. You see, by one sacrifice that we celebrate at this table, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We're never perfect this side of heaven, but we are being made holy. We are being sanctified. So in a sense, when we come to Jesus, we have been sanctified. We have been saved. And in Christ, we are being sanctified. We are being saved. And in Christ, we have sanctification. Conversion is but the beginning of a process. And the truth is, we're always going to need to continue in that process to be made more and more holy until we see Jesus Christ face to face. In Christ we have sanctification. And here's one that you may not have thought of very much. In Christ we have preservation. It's not, as I say, a term you might use very often, but John Bunyan uh, was the man who wrote this, and I quote, to be saved is to be preserved in the faith to the end. And they that are saved are, and I think he quotes from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, and I love this verse. He says of Christians, your hope is kept in heaven, uh, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You are preserved as God's child, adopted into his family, a sure and certain adoption that cannot be undone, and you are preserved in Christ. And also, in Christ we have glorification. And that, again, is maybe something that you haven't thought of very, very much indeed, but uh, it's a wonderful thing. In Romans 8 and verse uh, 30, uh, we read uh, these words, And those he predestined, he also called. Let me just pause there. You know, some people have a terrible problem with predestination. Uh, And some people worry, has God predestined that some people would be saved and some people would be lost? And if he's predestined it, we can't do anything about it. Well, let me just explain it in one sentence. Predestination is that God saves the whosoever will. I think it's as simple as that. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, just as if I'd never sinned in Christ, we have that justification. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Have you ever thought of that, that you and I are going to be glorified in Christ, in heaven, in glory, with the angels? It's an amazing and wonderful, wonderful thought. We will have the privilege of seeing God face to face and being made as like him as any creature can possibly be. That is an amazing thought. And uh, I want just to read Colossians 3 and verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And and there's another one just to almost finish with. In Christ, we have union with each other in the church. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, these uh, lovely words. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into one body, 
whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all given one Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, to drink. I, I love that verse. Because it says that no matter your background, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, foreign or national, whatever your background, whatever your, your upbringing, through Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, we are baptized into one body. There cannot be any more than one body of Christ, the one true church, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all given the one spirit to drink. You know, it's not a case that some of us are, are more spiritual than others. Oh, there may be people that we could look at and say, he or she is much more like Jesus than me. And I look at everybody and think, everybody's more like Jesus than me. But we're all given one Holy Spirit to drink. There's no room for pride. There's no room for complacency. There's no room for judging one another or looking down our noses at one another because we're all given the same Holy Spirit who is the originator of spiritual life in us. And in Christ, we have union one with the other in the church. Now, I make no apology for quoting so many Scripture verses as I, I believe the Bible explains itself so clearly. Although we've skimmed through a whole lot of amazing, great concepts. I hope it's given you a glimpse of the glory of Christ and all that we have in him. But what difference does that make? I want to uh, go back, if I may, to uh, that article by Anthony Billington and maybe just if you'd bear with me to read what he says. All this could sound ever so abstract were it not for our all-consuming interest in identity. Who am I really? We can spend a lot of time wondering. For some of us, the answer depends to a large extent on what others think and say about us, our parents, our peers, our colleagues. What conclusions about me are reflected back in the way they treat me? Who am I? The joker, the troublemaker, the failure, the helper. In Christ, we can know who we are. I want to repeat that. In Christ, we can know who we are. I may be a son, a husband, a father, a colleague. These things make me who I am. And they're not suppressed, but gloriously redefined in the light of my being in Christ. As I bring that identity into my everyday work, my relationship with my spouse, my conversations with my children, my handling of money, my use of time. In our union with Christ and Christ alone, our humanity is not obliterated but restored. How should we respond this morning? Well, taking communion would be a great start. To remember and thank Jesus for his death and resurrection and all that we have in him be a great start as we worship God for all that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, the first Adam became a human being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. And all that we have is in Christ and in him alone. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.